All right, well, we're really getting down to the end now. Finally, since August, everything is up on the board that we have left in the class. So that's everything that we have left to do. I have a couple things to still grade. Uh, or one thing, I still have the solar projects. I'm doing my online classes because theirs had to be turned in a little bit earlier than yours. So I'm working on getting theirs done. Hopefully have theirs finished today. I hope to have all of yours back on Friday. Uh, the things I will not have back until the final exam or any of the extra credits. I can tell you pretty much I won't look at those until Friday or into next week, early next week. So if you're the extra credit, the exam replacements that you turned in, if you did those, if you're doing this one, I doubt that you will get those back on Friday. I will give them back at the final, so you will have those, have those back. Otherwise, coming up, we have uh, next time we have a homework due, homework number eight, and we have an in-class quiz. And I told you last time what that was going to be. I'm going to list you 12 objects, which include the eight planets, the Sun and, Pl Sun and Pluto, that makes 10 objects, and then Alpha Centauri for a star, and the Andromeda galaxy for a galaxy, and all you got to do is put them in order from closest to, the sun, closest to the Sun to furthest. So you know exactly what's coming up. You start with the Sun, number one is the Sun, and you go through the planets uh, working inside out, and end up with the star in the galaxy. So hopefully everybody knows what's coming. You're ready for that on Friday. That'll just be a 12 out of 12 on a quiz. That will be the first extra quiz. You already have uh, 10 quizzes, which is the full amount of points for the quizzes. That means you get a 12 out of 12 on that one. You drop your lowest quiz, and that will help you. Uh, the iTunes quiz, which is coming up and will be available starting on Friday, will also drop another quiz. So if you do those two quiz, your lowest two quiz grades will get dropped. Unless these happen to be your lowest, in which case they'll get dropped. Or if you skip them, if you choose not to do them, then they'll get dropped. So they won't, your quiz grade at this point cannot go down, it can only go up. So that will help you if you missed a quiz along the way someplace or had one where you just didn't do very well, it'll give you a chance to drop, a, drop one of those, or actually two of those. And then the last thing, a week from today, final exam, uh, right here on Wednesday, December 10th, we start at class time, so it'll be 9 o'clock. It will run 9 to 11, so you'll have two hours for it. It will be about the, twice the length of a regular exam, so probably won't take you two full hours, as it normally doesn't take everybody an hour in here. So you should have plenty of time to do that. I will give you a sheet on Friday, kind of summarizing what will be on it, you know, giving an idea of the breakdowns and that. Um, you are allowed to bring in the summary sheets for any of the, chap any of the chapters you want to. If you want to bring them in from the older ones, if you want to bring them in from the newer ones, you can bring in all of those if you want, any of those you want to bring in. No other books or notes. Uh, final exam is in, it's in two parts, although I make it one big exam. Half of it will be material from the previous exams. Pretty much, I don't, I don't guarantee it word for word. So if you know all the answers to the previous exams, that's half your final right there. So make sure you go through them, make sure you get the answers to them, you have those all ready to go. And you've got them there. Hopefully you'll recognize a lot of those questions on the first half of the exam will be things you've seen before. So that's half your exam. The other half will be the material since the last exam and questions based on that material up through the chapter 18. So it'll be the last three or four chapters, whatever it turned out to be for this class. So it'll be one exam worth of new material. That'll be half of it. One exam worth of material from the previous exams. And that means that in terms of studying, study the new material and study your exams. You do not need to go back to old lectures and notes. If I didn't cover it on exam one and it was in chapter zero, one or two, you're not going to see it. You will not see that on the final. So you don't have to go back and try to review everything. You only have to review those four exams and then the material since them. 
But I will give you a sheet kind of explaining that and giving you a rough idea of what will be, uh, what the type of questions and everything will be on, on Friday. Any questions on anything here? Yes, ma'am. Um, are there essays? Yes. Yeah, there will be essays, just there'll be sets of essays just like on the other ones. There'll be some essays that you've seen before from the first set, and there'll be some that are, that are on the second set. They will be split up into two parts, meaning that you have to choose four out of six from the old set and four out of six from the new set. You can't do six of the old ones that you've seen and then only two of the new ones. So you, it will be just like two exams uh, stuck together. And I usually will come up, I haven't decided how I'm doing it this, I usually also give you a set of extra credit questions. So there'll probably be something else in there that'll be a set of, you know, 10 extra credit questions, multiple choice questions that you can do. I haven't decided exactly how I'm doing, I've done various different things over the years. So I don't know exactly what it will be, but there'll likely be a part, there'll be three parts. Part one is the old material, part two is the new material, and part three will be extra credit. So usually about 10 or 12 extra credit points that you can pick up. Yes, sir. How much of your grade is the final exam? Exam is 200 points, so it's a it's a big chunk, but it's not going. I mean, unless you really do horrible, or it's not normally going to make a big. It's not going to bring you up if if you're doing horrible. It's not going to bring you up to an A. If you've got an A, it's probably not going to bring you down to an F, even if you do horrible on it, because horrible is what 50, 60 percent typically. So, I mean, you, it'll hurt, it could hurt you. It might bring you down a letter grade if you really do. But typically on the final, people do better on the final than on the exams. Because I said, you've seen half those questions before. So go through and study those first four exams. Make sure you've looked up all the, true-false is easy, right? If it was, one is the other. Make sure you look up the others and find those, find those answers. If you have a couple you're not finding, you know, catch me after class or ask me. I mean, I'd, I'm not going to go through your exam and tell you all of the answers to everything, but if you've looked them up and you can't find a couple, you know, I'll give them to you. I'm not trying to hide them from you either. But anything else? Alrighty, well, picture of the day for today is uh, Sharpless 249 and the Jellyfish Nebula. So you can see the little jellyfish uh, there, maybe over to the right-hand side, kind of maybe angled up there. Uh, this is actually a supernova remnant from a supernova that occurred, I believe it was 30,000? 30, I've got to remember the number. I looked at it earlier. 30,000 years ago. So we saw the light from this supernova on Earth 30,000 years ago. And this is the material that is now expanding outward from that explosion. This is a part of that material. This is the material that is expanding out into space from a massive star that ripped itself apart a long, long time ago. And really, that's where we all come from. I mean, that's, that's where all of the elements that we see here on Earth, right? The metals, the iron, the aluminum, uh, copper, nickel, zinc, gold, platinum, all of that came from a supernova explosion like this where that material was generated during that explosion itself and then expelled out into the universe. So that's what this contains. It contains lots of those heavier elements. Remember to an astronomer, a heavy element is anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So all those heavier elements, the oxygen we're breathing, the carbon that makes us up, the iron in our blood is all created in a supernova explosion much like this. And this is just an example of one. And what happens is that material slowly expands out into space, taking 
you know, this was 30,000 years ago, but over millions of years, it expands out, it becomes part of the material in the interstellar medium that will then form new stars. So it will begin to form new stars, and those stars that form, unlike we just talked about with the Big Bang, which formed hydrogen and helium only, will start to form from heavier elements and be able to form things like rocky planets, planets that have lots of silicate rocks, iron, and stuff on them. So the earliest planets that would have formed would have been more like Jupiter. That's all that you would have had was hydrogen and helium. All you could form was a giant gaseous planet. The very earliest ones that formed in the very first generations of stars. Now, nearly 14 billion years later, we can form planets that have uh, much more solid material, more uh, carbons, silicons, oxygens, and all of the materials that make up the rocks and the components of the, of the Earth that we see today. So, a little bit of an image, de uh, image there looking at part of what's left over as that star explodes and eventually coming to be part of us. Questions? Alrighty, we'll go back out to the edge of the universe as we're finishing up here. Getting down to the very end. We were looking here last time. And I had this slide up, I believe, when we finished up. And we were looking at, the. this is really the edge of the universe. We were talking about the background radiation that demonstrated the Big Bang occurred. That the background radiation is something, is a, is, a, is something that the Big Bang Theory predicts. It predicts that if this is how the universe was created, that there should be this energy that permeates the entire universe. And that's what the two astron radio astronomers were able to detect back in the 1960s. They were able to detect that faint glow that's everywhere in the entire universe. So it was a big boost for the Big Bang, sort of demonstrating that one of the predictions that it made does come true, is true. Now what this was showing was that there's a distance out here, you know, 14, uh, 14 billion light years or so away from the Earth, that is where the universe all of a sudden became transparent. Very early on, we're looking back in time here, so as we look back, here's today, Remember, as we look out in space, we're looking further and further back in time. That's the edge. That's where we see the cosmic background radiation is from that distance. Beyond that, we can see nothing. At that point, the universe was opaque. Opaque meaning that light couldn't travel through it. So all of the energy that was there, all of those x-rays and gamma rays that were just floating through the universe were constantly being absorbed and re-emitted and they weren't free to travel through space as light is today. Once this point occurred, which is where the atoms actually started to recombine together, you see here we have protons and you may be able to see some scattered electrons here, the darker blue. They were all separate. They were just traveling around. Once the universe cooled off enough that hydrogen could combine, the universe suddenly went from being opaque to being transparent and that's where the cosmic background radiation comes from, is from that time when all of the atoms seem to combine together, when, when atoms combined together and actually formed atoms instead of individual particles. So when the hydrogen atoms were actually forming, that's when the universe became transparent and all of a sudden the radiation was free to travel and we can see. So we can see back to that distance. We can't see back any further. 
There's no way to see it. It's like looking through a solid wall. You know, I can't see into the next classroom because there's a solid wall here. I can't see back any further than the cosmic background radiation because there's a solid wall there. So we can't actually see. There's some theoretical things we can look at, but we can't actually observe anything that occurs back there. Now a couple of problems that we have with the Big Bang is that there's, um, we have this cosmic background radiation. It's incredibly smooth. It looks the same no matter where we look at it in the sky. And that leads to a problem. If we look out in the universe, we can look out that way, 13, 14 billion light years. We can look out that way, 13 or 14 billion light years. That means that those two pieces are very far apart. Meaning there shouldn't be, but they're exactly the same temperature. Everything is exactly the same temperature and that shouldn't be the case. That's because they have not had time to be in contact with each other. They haven't had time for energy to smooth out to that, uh, that amount. If we heat up something here on Earth, you put a big heater up front in the classroom, okay, turn it on, everything starts to get warmer. Those in the back of the class aren't instantly going to be warmer. It takes time for that, to, for that energy to travel. Well, if these things are you know, 20 billion light years apart, there hasn't been any time for even light to travel from one to the other, let alone any other kind of energy. So let alone for any kind of energy to transmit between one or the other. So what we call the horizon problem means that the background radiation looks incredibly smooth, but why should it? There has not been any time, enough, enough time, for all of those temperatures to smooth out. Right? We put the heater on and let it run, and let it run for you know, an hour or so, and then come back in. The room's pretty much uniformly warm. Right? We let it run. But when we turn it on instantly, it's going to get nice and hot up front, and it's going to be cold off to the edges still. It hasn't had the time for that energy to travel. That's the same thing with the universe. Why is it there hasn't been enough time for things that are that far apart to have smoothed out, and yet they have. So why is the, why is the background, background radiation not lumpier than it, is, than it appears to be? So that's one of, the, one of the problems with the Big Bang, and we're going to come up with a way to try to explain this. There is the horizon problem. There's a second problem that we have as well, is that not only does the radiation look the same in every direction, but the other problem is that the universe looks incredibly flat. And fittingly enough, we call that the flatness problem. And that just says that, you know, this is a, just shows the size of the universe. This graph shows the size of the universe. And what would happen to it depending on the density. We're accelerating out here. That's what we believe is happening. There is a critical density here. There's an open universe, a critical with just matter. There is a closed universe. The problem is in order for our universe to still be here, I think we're still here, right? We're still here. The universe, the density very early on had to be almost exactly equal to the critical density. If it was a little bit more, then there'd be too much density and the universe would have closed and recollapsed long ago. If there was a little bit too much, then the too little density, then the acceleration kicks in and we shouldn't be seeing other galaxies out there. They have all, would all accelerated so far away from us we would no longer be able to see them. 
So in order for the universe to still be here, for us to be able to talk about things like other galaxies and that the universe has not collapsed, it had to be almost exactly the critical density. And it says one part in 10 to the 15th. So that would be what? To that kind of precision, right? We don't measure anything to that kind of precision. So that's how close it had to be. That tiny fraction of the of the critical density it had to be almost precisely the critical density. If it differed by a little bit more than that, right after the Big Bang, then we would have collapsed. We'd have long since been gone and collapsed down. If it differed by, if it was a lot less than that, right after the Big Bang then we would have accelerated, remember dark energy would have accelerated us out and we wouldn't see all those distant galaxies anymore. They'd have accelerated long, much further away from us. In fact, so far away we would just not be able to see them because the light from them wouldn't have been able to reach us yet. So two problems are horizon, why does everything look so smooth no matter where I look in the sky, the background looks exactly the same and flat. The universe looks like it had to have been incredibly flat, flat, in fact, almost exactly equal to the critical density. So I said, we, you know, we looked at uh, numbers, we said the universe is accelerating, we said based on matter it looked like it would, be it would be wide open, but based on the fact that it's still here, it must have been very, very close to the critical density early on. So how we explain these is what we call cosmic inflation. Right? We're used to thinking of inflation in terms of money. You know, value becomes less and less. Cosmic inflation is a very tiny instant after the Big Bang. Okay, I drew out 15 zeros there. You can double that and a little more for, what's for those numbers if you're trying to imagine how tiny of a fraction that is. You know, put 32 zeros and a 1. That's when the universe underwent this cosmic inflation. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of a second. I mean, so small we can't even begin to imagine how small that is. I mean, again, try to imagine that fraction of a second. That's too small, right? You can a tenth of a second, a hundredth of a second, you can start to have some meaning of. That's, you know, ones up here and here. That's a tiny fraction of a second. Put another 15, 15 zeros or so in there before you get to that one. That's an incredibly tiny fraction. But what happened in that time is that the universe went from being the size of an atom. This is like atomic size down here, so extremely tiny. There's the Big Bang. All of a sudden, it just accelerated. It went from being that big to being universe size in a tiny fraction of a second. So it expanded by a factor of 10 to the 50th power. Again, these are things we can't even, I, I can't imagine 10 to the 50th. Expand anything by 10 to the 50th. We just can't, can't really get any uh, comprehension of that, how big that is. But essentially it went to the universe being, you know, atomic size, squish it between your fingers and, you know, even tinier than that, to being the size of a universe all of a sudden in that very tiny fraction of a second. This helps us to explain the problems that we had with the horizon and with the flatness. It can actually explain both of those away. So that's why astronomers believe that this is the case, that there is this very tiny fraction of the time the universe got incredibly bigger. Because otherwise, if it just got bigger at a much more leisurely rate and not this quick, we wouldn't expect to see different edges of the universe at, this different temp at the same temperature. We wouldn't expect the universe to look so flat necessarily. 
we might expect it to look like it's going has collapsed or it's going to collapse or it's accelerating outward. So in this very short period of time, the universe went from being nothing in terms of size to being not exactly the size we see today because it's still expanding, but from getting that much larger, incredibly larger in, a, again, a time frame that we really can't even begin to imagine. Yes, ma'am? No, it's actually expanding. It is expanding. Um, that opaque line is the entire, it's the universe. You've got to remember, that's actually part of the universe. So it's, that line is not just out in the distance, it's, every, it's here. It's everywhere. Because we're just a part, the Big Bang was, it gets to the fact that we're looking at our universe and we're seeing only part of the dimensions. So that, the Big Bang didn't occur someplace in space. It occurred everywhere at once. So the Big Bang occurred here, it occurred, you know, Alpha Centauri, it occurred the Andromeda Galaxy, it occurred in the distant quasar, all at the same time. So you're not really expanding outward like that, everything is expanding. What this really is, is an expansion of the space, of space, not the material necessarily, but the space between all of a sudden gets much larger. So, because you'd think, okay, if you're getting that much bigger, material is traveling faster than the speed of light, it's the space between them is really what is really expanding. So if that, I know this is part of the stuff that gets your, gives you a headache. <laughs> yeah? Um, since matter can't be created nor destroyed, wouldn't that mean there's a limit to how far it can expand? Not necessarily. The limit to how much matter there could be, the matter and energy would still be. There'd be some total amount of matter and energy in the universe. The universe could keep expanding forever. It just gets less and less dense and eventually you'd see fewer and fewer galaxies. It would just expand out further and further, but doesn't really have a limit to how much it can expand, other than that things are going to start, you know, disappearing and fading out as they get further and further away from us. Yep. Yes. Alrighty. So let's see what this does. Well, here's an example of it using our balloon that we've used before, earlier in this chapter. Inflation solves both of these two problems. So here's a nice little ant walking on the surface of a balloon. That's maybe 10 centimeters, you have about four inches in size. Right? The little nice little ant can see the curvature. You can see how, the, how, the, how it's curved, so you can see how the balloon is bent. If you expand that, if you take that balloon, this is a really stretchy balloon, it can expand a lot. It doesn't pop very easily. So you take it from being 10 centimeters to one kilometer in size. Okay. You could still get some kind of sense of that, right? If we're here on the Earth, if you get up into a you know, high enough airplane or up into orbit, you can actually see the curvature of the Earth. So you can actually see, you can still see that, but to us down here, it doesn't really look very curved. If we imagine doing what happened during inflation, and instead of taking that from 10 centimeters and increasing it 10 to the 50th times, now that, that is now 10 to the 48th meters. I can't imagine the number. 10 to the 48th meters. All of a sudden, that little tiny bit of the universe, the part that you can actually see, you know, this box is what, the, what you can see. That's where light has had time to travel to get to you. So there's a little bit of curvature. There's a lot of curvature, a little bit. Here, all you can see is this little tiny balloon. If you blow up that balloon that much, it's going to look, any little piece of it, any little tiny square piece of it is going to look very, very flat when you've made it that big. So that explains the flatness problem. It's not that the universe is necessarily flat. 
It might be curved as you go way, way off, but we can't see any of that. We're only looking at our own little tiny portion of the universe that we can see. There might be a lot more of it out there. There might be a lot more of the universe out there that would you know, have some curvature, whether closed in or open. You know, that's something we don't know. But all we can see is our little bit here. That's all. This, this is the 13 billion light years away. This is 13 billion light years away. That's all the time light has had to travel. So we can see that it's very easy. It looks, the universe is going to look very flat if we expand, if we underwent a great inflation like this. It can also explain the horizon problem. Horizon, again, meaning that everything, the temperatures of the background radiation look the same in all directions. If we started out here, you know, there might have been some clumps, but we're taking this little teeny tiny portion of it and expanding it out greatly. All of a sudden, early, early on, all of this was in contact together. We then expanded it outward. So that could explain why all the temperatures are the same. So it can explain inflation. Inflation can explain flatness. Why the universe looks so flat, I mean incredibly flat, to this kind of precision. And why, the, the, why it looks the same in all the directions. Why the background radiation is the same. Now, ending up here, how do we form the large scale structure? That's kind of what we started this chapter with. We looked a little bit at what we saw for a large scale structure. How the galaxies and all clumped together. And what astronomers have understood now is that galaxies shouldn't have formed yet. There hasn't been enough time for galaxies to form. So why are galaxies here? There just hasn't been enough time. And why is that? Well, in order for them to clump, you think early on everything would have been spread out pretty smoothly. You had to have time for clumps to generate. A little bit of material get closer and closer together and gather more and eventually become galaxies and clusters of galaxies and those would form stars. But if you do the models you wouldn't have had enough time for that to occur yet. So why are we here? Why are we here discussing that right now? One of the problems was before decoupling, decoupling is matter and energy becoming separate things and the background radiation actually being able to stream through the universe. That background radiation was so intense that no clumps could form. You start to clump up a little bit of material, that radiation was constantly ripping it apart and spreading it out. So very early on, there was no way for the, for the material, for the matter that we know today, you know, regular matter, matter that makes up the Earth, the Sun, the stars, the galaxies, to be able to clump. If it had been clumping, we'd be able to see it. Not directly, but we'd be able to see it in looking at the microwave background. If matter were clumping, we'd be able to see hotter areas and cooler areas in the microwave background. We don't see that. We see the background radiation is incredibly smooth. To a very high precision, it's, very, it's almost exactly the same no matter where we look. So we should have seen that kind of variations. If there were any variations in the density, we don't think they could have formed because of the intense radiation at the time. But if there were, we should see it in the microwave background. We should see that might be a little bit hotter. You know, instead of three degrees, it might be four or five degrees. That part might be only one or two degrees. And you'd see big variations. We don't see that. No matter where we look in the sky, it's almost exactly the same. So how can we form these instabilities? Well, if we can't do them from normal matter, 
We need something else. Right? Not something new, something we've already talked about would be dark matter. Dark matter does not interact with radiation. So if dark matter was present very early on in the history of the universe, it would have been able to start clumping very early because it doesn't interact with the radiation. The right? only way we see it is through gravity. It doesn't emit any kind of radiation. We can't see it at all. We see its gravitational effects. So early on, it could have begun to clump. And then those clumps, it interacts gravitationally, could have led to clumps of normal matter. So what do we see? Let me see. So, again, I'm trying to get into dark matter here. Because of the expansion, you could have formed some clumping and some of the stuff we do see in the background. It would have been about 50 to 100 times the density of the area surrounding it. Seems pretty good. But if you think about that here in the solar system, you know, what's the density of empty space? Almost zero. What's the density of a planet or a star or even a nebula? A lot more than 50 to 100 times the density of empty space. So you could have formed a little bit of clumping, but because of the way the universe expanded, you could have had a little bit, but not near enough to explain the fact that we see galaxies and clusters of galaxies and all of that today. Dark matter, on the other hand, is not affected by radiation. It ignores it. Radiation travels right through dark matter as if it's not there. It doesn't absorb anything, right? The gas cloud will absorb light. The dust cloud will absorb light from the stars or the galaxies. That normal matter will, but dark matter will not do that. It only, we only see its effects gravitationally. So dark matter would have been able to clump very, very early in the history of the universe. And that could have led as, you know, seeds for ordinary matter to clump together. First the dark matter clumps together, gives you a little bit of a clump right here that will eventually become some great giant cluster of galaxies. And that gravitationally will then attract the other material. So gravitationally that can attract other material allowing it to, allowing it to finally gather together. So you can actually form, this is how we believe you can actually form the material that we see in the universe the clusters of galaxies and the galaxies is because of dark matter. Because they shouldn't be here otherwise. There's no way they should be here in only, only 13 billion years. It takes a long, long time. If everything was kept together for, a very early, for the very early part of the universe was kept very smooth, it would be very hard for those to form. Because we do see them today, we know that something else must have happened. All right, so here's an example of what we see. So this is very early on, one second. After one second after the Big Bang, everything was pretty much spread uniformly through space. There's normal matter there, just a little tiny bit of it. There's all the dark matter. Here it is here. You've got the red is the dark matter scattered all over the universe. The yellow is the normal matter scattered all over the universe. Everything was spread out pretty uniformly. After about a thousand years, okay, a thousand years later after the Big Bang, energy is still so intense that all of the, all the normal matter is still evenly spread out across the universe. So the normal matter is spread out pretty much, again, randomly throughout that block that we're looking at. But because the radiation doesn't interact with the dark matter, it started to clump a little bit. And you have some areas where there's a little bit more density and some where there's a little bit less. So you actually can see there's some red here, red here, red here, that sort of clump together a little bit. 
Once you start to get that clumping, it's like a star forming. Once you get that instability that gets the star to collapse or gets the material to collapse to form the galaxy, it builds on itself. So once you get a little more density here, that attracts more material. And after maybe a hundred million years, you now have dark matter very strongly attracted to one center here. Same thing over here, another grouping. And the normal matter now has been gravitationally pulled to the same area. So what we see is something like this. You have red clumps, which are the dark matter surrounding all of this. You have the yellow clumps, which are the normal matter. So these would be like our clusters of galaxies. So you'd have a whole cluster of galaxies, a whole cluster of galaxies on, I mean that's what we would see based on this type of model. Based on assuming that the dark matter is able to clump earlier, it can explain the observations that we see today. And that's the whole idea of a theory. A theory of this, you know, how did the galaxies come to form? We know what they look like today. We need a model that will be able to explain that. Without dark matter, we can't explain why we have all these gigantic clusters of galaxies that we see today. Here's an example of a simulation that's been done. Over 14 billion years, so after a billion years after the Big Bang, everything was pretty much uniform. Four billion years later, you're starting to see some clumps together as material has been slowly gathering together. After about 14 billion years, that's about what we see with our universe today. You've got lots of clumps of material. You've got lots of filaments. We see those. You've got great voids, areas where there's hardly any material. And that's what we see in the universe today. So this is an example that's been a simulation that's been done adding in dark matter, so adding in extra gravity for the dark matter, allowing it to collapse first, and then watching how the visible matter, because that's what we can actually see, collapses around it. And we can actually simulate and form the general type of universe that we see here today. So we can do some simulations. This is right now the best way we have to explain the structures that we see in the universe. Remember we looked at them. We saw all those filaments. Material galaxies seem to cluster together in superclusters in great filaments. And there were lots of voids, lots of areas where there was hardly or hardly any galaxies. So this is a way to be able to explain that. Now, I said that the cosmic background radiation was very smooth. It's not perfectly smooth. There are some variations in it. And because dark matter interacts gravitationally, it will cause some very slight variations in the background. And that's what we're seeing here. You're seeing some places where the cosmic background radiation is a little bit warmer. Here, here, the yellower areas are going to look a little bit warmer. The bluer areas are a little bit cooler. So we can actually see some variations. They're not much. These are incredibly tiny. Now I said we should see these if matter were clumping. We should see these. They'd be on a much larger scale than we actually see. But the dark matter will cause, so again another prediction of this model, that dark matter says it won't interact with the radiation, but it does interact gravitationally with other material. That should give us little tiny ripples in the background radiation that we can see. And that's what this is. This is a map of the entire sky. Right, you've seen projections of the world that look like this, where you take the whole Earth and split it up maybe into this kind of projection. Well, this is now the entire sky. So you look up at the sky, you know, the entire, not just part that you see, but the entire sky mapped in radio waves. And we see that there are some areas that are a little bit brighter and are some that are a little bit fainter. 
how much brighter and fainter? Well, not quite this, not quite this small, but we're talking about things that are you know, 10 thousandths of a degree, several 10 thousandths of a degree. Tribute to us that we can measure that precisely, that we can measure that accurately, the temperature, to see those very tiny variations. That's why we didn't detect them at first, because that's a really, really high precision to be able to measure that kind of difference. Hotter areas might be three ten thousandths of a degree hotter. Other ones might be three ten thousandths of a degree lower. Now, normally for our precision, we're not even going to notice that kind of difference. Here's a little bit higher resolution image. This gives some of the numbers. So about 300 micro kelvins, 300 millionths of a degree, is about what we're seeing those variations as. So they're there. We can see some definitely some hotter areas in the microwave background. There's some hotter areas. There's some cooler areas or cooler areas here. We can see that kind of variation. Almost looks like our images of the sun there. You've got some hotter areas and some cooler areas scattered around. Again, that's a prediction of the dark matter that we would see these very slight variations. Not tenths of degrees or degrees, but much, much smaller. But that shows the, the dark matter beginning to clump very early on. So where was the dark matter beginning to clump? You can see changes then in the temperature of the background radiation. And I am going to stop there so that I can go ahead and get started. I'm going to at least get the introduction to chapter 18 so we can really work on that on Friday. The only thing left, if you have the summary, I have the summary at the end. I didn't bother to put that up here. Um, you can take a look through those. Those are available up on, on D2L for you. Any questions on cosmology? Before we go to something a little bit closer to, yeah. Could it happen again? Yes. Could it happen again? What would happen if you have, I think we looked at, uh, if you were here Wednesday, we did the video. Okay, we did a video where she talked about, you know, the universe was expanding, but was it, some, some of the models show that the universe always existed and that there's a sequence of expansion and contraction where everything crunches back down together to a single point and then, the, then it begins again. So in that case, you know, is the universe just 14 billion years old? Well, that's our part of the universe that we see. But could it expand and eventually contract down and do that all over again? So is the Big Bang going to occur right here now again? No. It would be the entire universe re-collapsing and you know, billions and billions of years from now, but that could, that could recur. And maybe it has. Maybe we're just an endless cycle of universes. You know, ours is just the current one. And you know, what will, will the universe be like 50 billion years from now? Well, maybe it'll be a new, completely different universe. Or maybe there's other universes out there beyond everything. So yeah, heads hurt, right? <laughs> Hopefully life in the universe comes back a little bit. Anything else? Alrighty, well let me go ahead and just get the introduction here. We'll get this started so we can, uh, let's see, I'm going to go ahead and start with this. And last chapter, life in the universe. So we'll get a time, I'll get a start on this and then we will come back and continue this on Friday. But really what we want to talk about now is now that we've kind of blown our minds with trying to think about a curved universe in four dimensions or five or six or you know what is it what does all this mean? This is a little bit close, still requires some thought, but a little bit a little bit closer, a little bit closer to home kind of thinking about things. So what is the evidence for life in the universe? Well, us, right? And we're here. 
right now, that's the only life that is known in the universe. Okay? There's you know, possibilities, you know, read science fiction, you know, life could be out there all over the place. But do we know anything else about it? We do not know any place else in the universe at this point where life exists. We know lots of places where life could exist. You know, Mars, maybe Mars had life at some point. Some very simple life, not some great civilization, but maybe some very simple life. Maybe it still does. Nothing we've been able to detect yet. We know that there are some moons in the outer solar system that have liquid water on them or in them. Europa, for example, has liquid water, so maybe it could have formed life. Maybe it has it right now. Not, again, nothing we've been able to detect yet. We've looked for civilizations out there, you know, other stars, and tried to detect signals from them without success yet. Doesn't mean they're not there, just means we have not been able to detect them yet. So what I'm going to do, let me zip out here. What we're going to look at is start off looking at cosmic evolution. That's what I want to kind of look at today. And then talk about you know, the possibility of life elsewhere in the solar system. Again, we know that life exists at one place, but that's just here on Earth. And then life further out in the galaxy. And that's what we'll look for a little bit on, uh, on Friday. And our lab is actually calculating how many intelligent civilizations there are in the universe or in the galaxy. Something we can calculate if you know all the numbers going into it. One, one we know for sure. <laughs> and then the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is where I'll kind of finish that up. So let me just get the introduction started here. And what we need is, first of all, if we're going to talk about life, what, what do we mean by life? What does it mean to be living? That's not necessarily an easy thing to, know, to decide. You know, what is the definition of life? What does a living organism, what are the things that a living organism has to be able to do? And, you know, if you look at science fiction, right, there's all sorts of odd organisms that might not meet our normal definition of life. You know, we think here on Earth, well, you need oxygen, um, you need water, you need a certain temperature, you know, you need some kind of energy, you know, what do you need? What could another what could some other type of life be, ba could other types of life be based on other elements, right? We use uh, carbon. There's always stories of li life based on silicon, rock creatures, where life is based on silicon. Silicon is a very similar chemistry to carbon, where it can make longer chains. So could there be some place where life, instead of developing with carbon, could have developed with silicon? Could it breathe something other than oxygen? You know, we need oxygen. Could you breathe some other kind of element? Uh, could you use some other kind of liquid? We use water, right? Water is very important for life here on Earth. You know, it's hard to imagine without you know, water and oxygen, how long do we survive? Not very long. But could there be other types of life that don't need water, that use some other kind of liquid? liquid? Uh, Titan, the great moon of Saturn, has methane on its surface. Could some kind of life develop in liquid methane? It's incredibly cold by our standards. You know, freeze us instantly, we're causing hundreds of degrees below zero. But could some other kind of life that developed there survive? Because once we find here on Earth is that once life forms, it's pretty good at surviving almost any place. It can survive at you know, vents at the bottom of the ocean that are hundreds of degrees, you know, much hotter than anything we could survive under. Survives out in the Antarctic at incredibly cold temperatures. Yes, sir? Mm-hmm. Well, we probably can't send 
right now we would not be capable of sending human. Okay, we'd probably be capable of sending there, but I don't know how well they'd be able to survive and get back. Well, what about like from like rovers or anything? So just like get that samples and bring them back. Or there is a possibility that would still be difficult. I'm trying to think of how much energy you have to have to get out there to be able to get on Titan and then be able to launch back off it. We've landed on Titan. But in order to launch back out of it, you're, you know, you're well away from the sun. You don't have a lot of solar energy. So you'd have to have some kind of, you'd have to bring not only enough energy to land, but you have to get enough energy to launch it back off. And that's got a pretty thick atmosphere to launch through. So I mean, it certainly is, is a possibility of something that could be done. I don't think we're quite ready for it yet. Mars would be a good one. Mars, we certainly could get to. If we wanted to, we could be at Mars you know, within a decade and explore, exploring it, manned exploration of Mars. That's certainly cap further out. We're, it's still real difficult right now. This is interesting because, like, if you watch like the old Star Trek series, they mm -hmm. have, like primates with like pink paint on them. Yeah. Like, well, how do we know all like? That's a good point, and that's a, that's kind of what the point of this is: is what does life need to be based on? So, kind of eliminating all that is, you know, what does any life form have to have? Well, these are some general properties that we think that any life form would have to have. It wouldn't necessarily just depend on um, specific, specific elements. It doesn't depend on water. It doesn't depend on having iron. It doesn't depend on anything else. These are four things that any life form should have to have that scientists would generally agree that you know, this is something that would be considered living. You know, is it something that can react to its environment? So, what can we form that actually is react? What can you know? We react to our environment. You know, other animals, other plants react to their environment. If there's changes in the environment, that changes them. Um, ability to grow. Okay, taking some kind of nourishment. Notice it doesn't say what kind, and processes it into energy. So that would be us. That would be water, food, you know, energy, and produces converts it into energy. So ability to grow. Right, so differentiate us from a rock or a tree from a rock. The tree can grow and get bigger. The rock's just going to sit there. It's not living. It has no way to take in nourishment and can produce it into energy. It just sits there. Ability to reproduce. So to form new life. Offspring having the same characteristics as of the parent, whether that's a single-celled organism splitting into two. Got the same DNA as the parents, or if it's a you know for two parent having an offspring and creating you know life that has characteristics of both of the parents, but some way to reproduce. Otherwise, you know, the life is done, right? If it can't reproduce itself in one way or another, it's gone. You form life and it's done. So you would not be able to have any further life beyond that. So again, something a rock can't do. Right? No way to form a rock is not going to form a new rock or a small rock from it. And then the ability to evolve and change. Yeah, because you could smash the rock, yeah. But that requires some kind of outside. That's not really just itself. The rock's not going to do it by itself. Um, ability to evolve and change. So it adapt to its environment and to be able to change. So these are just really four general things that have to have to occur in order for something to be considered as living. So if it doesn't meet all of these, then we would not consider You know, it doesn't, doesn't talk about water, doesn't talk about oxygen, doesn't talk about any specific temperatures, doesn't talk about any specific atmospheres. It doesn't require anything else except that it has some way to do all of these things. 
So this is more general than life we consider here on Earth. When we talk about life here on Earth, we look very specifically at certain things. So I'm going to do this one and we'll finish up probably here. Uh, this is what we've looked at so far. We've looked at a whole bunch of this material so far and we're kind of going to do the whole rest of this over the next chapter on Friday. Particulate, particular, particulate evolution is forming the particles. Form, that's the Big Bang, forming the very basic elements. We then had galactic, forming the galaxies, forming the stars, forming the planets. We've looked at all this during the course. What we want to look at right now is picking up here and look at you know, what happens once we form the planets. How do we get from forming a planet? We know that's pretty easy. We've got eight planets in our solar system. We've got about 1,800 and some that have been detected elsewhere outside of our solar system. We know that it's pretty easy to form those planets. Once we form a planet, how easy is it to get to some kind of life? And that's what we're going to look at with chemical and biological evolution and then eventually cultural evolution. Now, how long does that civilization last once it's formed? So that's what I'm going to continue with on Friday. I just want to get the introduction out of the way here and then Friday we'll go through that. We'll do our lab where we'll calculate how many civilizations there are in the universe. Uh, do not forget if you're turning in the extra credit, you can submit that to the same Dropbox on D2L if you don't have it here to turn into me now by 6 o'clock tomorrow. And then quiz 8 will be in class on Friday. Question? Otherwise, have a good rest of the day and I will see you for the last one on Friday. Thank you.